Okay. All right. It says it's live. We're just going to go with it. None. Four o'clock. Seed. Continue. Air. Sun. Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Taking an oath, determined that I will follow your righteous law. Suffered much. Serve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Teach me the laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. Mm. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. To the very end. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, let's see. We've got some prayer requests. <sighs> We've got uh, William in the U.K. Had a heart attack a while ago and got a stent, but now he's having bad chest pains. So that was a couple days ago. I've not gotten an update on that. So, uh, Victoria had a stroke on the 15th. Now, this morning I found out she's not in the ICU anymore, but this is a couple days ago. She's in the ICU, not doing well. A previous stroke affected her right side. This one, her left. She can't speak and is very weak. So we want to keep her and her husband, David, in prayer. And I know that's tough on him because, you know, but yeah, she's just not in the ICU. But I, I, uh, anyway, um, Irina has constant bleeding from her uterus. Uh, doctors suspect cancer. This is, once again, a couple of days ago. I got to follow up on this uh, yesterday. She was admitted to the hospital, uh, but uh, her husband at the time, Leo, cannot visit her. Uh, the problem started in 2015. Well, they released her from the hospital, and things are looking up, but they have to do a biopsy, and they'll get a report on that soon. So uh, that's kind of some background information, plus where they're at right now on the first three of them. All, I don't have anything more current than that, but um, Pat Flattery is having a knee replacement surgery, and he's in his 80s. So, you know, even even when you're young, my grandfather was a doctor, and he said never go under the knife, ever, unless it's absolutely necessary so you know the older you are the more chance you have of infection of this and that so we want to keep him in prayer uh mary has very painful gastric issues um i think she's better today but uh we'll keep her in prayer because that's just you know when you got that you're just nothing else is going right so we got those prayer requests and then becky and um, mark and becky in colorado had the coronavirus, I think they're still lingering with it, and it's just, they're debilitated, so they need prayer as well, and uh, so there you go with that. We'll go into prayer first with that, and then we'll get some other things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to pray for these people, and for anybody else that, uh, lots of other prayer requests that have been out there, Lord, and uh, we just want to lift them all up to you, and we'll hope and pray that uh, they will know that your hand is upon them. If they're believers in Christ, you are with them, and so. Uh, Make your presence known to them in a real way so that they can feel it during their times of affliction and have that assurance that no matter what happens, that you have a better end for all of us and that we can look ahead to that even in our difficulties and trials and know that you are there and you will bring us to a happy end. Thank you for that assurance. And Lord, we certainly pray for this class that it would be handled properly and that uh, if there's anything that is not taught properly, that it would be brought to our attention so that we would not teach something that's incorrect to the people that want to know your word more, more deeply. Lord, we thank you for the chance to meet here. We're so grateful for it. We praise you. We love you. And we do so. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, then we have, let's see, we've got... Um, uh, 
oh, before I get into this day in Christian history, um, uh, today we posted the introduction to Acts. We're going to have two more introductions. We've got introduction day one, day two, and day three. And um, there are options that you can do. If you want to follow along with the book of Acts and you just don't like reading very much, we've got several options for you. And if you can't find these things, you can email me and I can send them to you. But the first is we have the written commentary, which will be every single day at the top of the website where it says today. You just click on today and it'll bring up today's uh, commentary. And then the second option is that you can have it read to you. A guy over in the UK decided that he wants to read the Acts commentaries and then post them on his website, BibleIn10.com, B-I-B-L-E-I-N-T-E-N.com. Okay, so BibleIn10.com, and then we will take that and also link that on the website, which I did this morning, or actually Mike did for me, and then after that, it is also linked at Sermon Audio, so the written and the um the uh, podcast, the audio, are at Sermon Audio. And then there's a third option, and I don't have the link in front of me. I didn't write it down, but it's from uh, YouTube. It's called Discern the Bible. And you may have to look around for it. If you can't find it, let me know. But Discern the Bible is the channel. And then this is Joey. She's been posting all of the Revelation commentaries every single day. And they're in written form, but they've got music, and you can read them as they scroll. And so that is another option if you want to read on the internet. So we've got those three options. We've got a written commentary that you can read, and then we've got a audio commentary that you can. Thank you, Sergio. We've got an audio commentary that you can uh, uh, hear, and then you've got a written scrolling commentary that you can read and listen to music at the same time. So we're trying to make it where it's interesting for you. And you, you know, if you don't like doing it one way, there's other options. And they'll all be on the Superior Word website linked. Hopefully, I'll be able to work that out for them. And then they'll also be on Sermon Audio. And they will be on YouTube and at BibleIn10.com. So you can get it any way you want it. And if you can't find that, let me know. But I hope that you will join the Acts Commentary. It's going to take 1,010 days to complete the commentary because we've got three days of introduction and a thousand and seven days of verses, one verse per day. So it'll take, you know, two and a half years, or I think I said 2.67 years or 2.76 or yeah, something like that. So uh, I hope that you will join that. You'll learn a lot about uh, where doctrines get off, especially because of the book of Acts. As I say in the commentary, I think it's tomorrow's or maybe the last day's commentary that 99.6327% of all errors in the church come from the book of Acts. Obviously, that's a joke, but it's a high number of errors in doctrine come from a misunderstanding or a misapplication of Acts. So please, uh, and if anybody wants the Revelation commentary, it is now completed. So um, uh, my friend Wade is working on the PDF, and that will be posted to the website. You can download the entire thing, every verse, all, uh, you know, 404 or whatever verses. It's all right there. But um, it's also in a Word doc form that we can get you as well. So just different options for you. And um, let's see here. We've got uh, September. Today must be the 22nd. Anybody? 23rd? 23rd. 23rd. Okay, today's the 23rd. How you doing, Charles? Good, good. Okay, September 23rd. What do you do if you announce a prayer meeting but no one comes? 
The summer of 1857 was a frustrating time to be a Christian in New York City. <laughs> Nothing's changed. In the commercial district, wealthy bankers and real estate speculators constantly, or I'm sorry, conspicuously thanked God for their profitable deals, yet in the vast slums, poverty was inescapable. The revival fires of the Second Great Awakening had been dampened 20 years earlier by the financial panic of 1837. Jeremiah Lanfear was a man who wanted to make a difference. Born south of Albany, he had come to New York City to enter the mercantile business. Then at the age of 33, he unexpectedly discovered that Jesus Christ was real and that he had paid the penalty for his sins. Woohoo! Lanfear gave his life to Jesus and joined the Brick Presbyterian Church, spending much of his spare time as a street evangelist. Then, in the summer of 1857, the North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street decided to hire a full-time lay evangelist to reach the immigrants living around their church. They chose the energetic fellow from Brick Presbyterian, Jeremiah Lanfear. Lanfear immediately started passing out invitations to the church to all who lived within walking distance, but found few takers. He began praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? The answer he received was that God wanted people to pray. As he mulled this over in his mind, an idea started to take form. He would have a prayer meeting for businessmen from noon to 1 p.m. It would be a simple and flexible meeting. Businessmen could come for a few minutes or for a whole hour. It would include singing, prayer, and exhortation, and a bell would ring if anyone spoke over five minutes. That's a smart one there. Lamphere printed up a handbill inviting the people to a weekly prayer meeting at noon on Wednesdays in the third floor meeting room of the North Dutch Church on Fulton Street. The first prayer meeting would be held September 23rd, 1857. The appointed day arrived at noon. Lamphere went into the room and knelt to pray. Ten minutes passed, and no one came. Twenty minutes passed, he was still alone. Finally, at 12.30, he heard the door open from the street and the sound of footsteps coming up the stairway. One man entered the room and, without saying a word, knelt down next to Lamphere. Then another man came, followed by another, by un until by one o'clock there were six. But the following week there were twenty. Then in the first week of October, the meetings were held daily, and the number gathered increased to forty. The fourth week, attendance averaged over 100, and with many under conviction and inquiring how they might be saved. New York City was to see a great need for God on when on October 18th, a financial panic seized the city, collapsing the economy into a brief but steep recession. The Fulton Street meetings, as they became known, soon filled the rooms at the North Dutch Church and spilled over into the nearby John Street Methodist Church. Soon many other churches were opening their doors, both at noon and before work in the morning. Even police stations and firehouses opened their doors to meet the needs for places to pray. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering for prayer daily. Although the revival was the most spectacular in New York City, businessmen's prayer meetings sprang up in many cities around the country. Within the next two years, approximately one million converts were added to the churches of America. Have you felt prompted by God to plan an event only to have very few attend? It would have been easy for Jeremiah Lamphere to feel discouraged, even after the five others finally showed up at his first prayer meeting. But he persevered. In similar situations, we must remember that our responsibility is to be faithful to God and what he directs to us to do, and the results are up to him. 
Matthew 25, 21, the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I heard another one, a guy, I think it was Adrian Rogers who was talking about it. Uh, a guy had a uh, special meeting. A famous person was coming into maybe North Carolina, somewhere, somewhere on the East Coast. And uh, it was a rainy night. It was just a, a dismal night to go to church. The guy shows up, and it's supposed to be a full church, and 12 people were there. Or maybe it was last six or seven or whatever, and the pastor was just, he was appalled. He said, I'm so sorry. You got the wrong night, and nobody came. And he said, don't worry. Jesus started all of this with 12 people. So <laughs> there you go. Good point. Yeah, you know, it's not about us, and when it's about us, it's not about him. So let's see here. Um we are in, I did, oh, five, five, seven. Seven. Five, seven. Five, seven. Five, seven today. Start at the beginning, very short. First, but anyhow, be imitators of God, dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Mm. people. Nor should there be a obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Okay, this is a really short verse here. So this one says partakers. Yours says partners. I got more letters than you did. All right, let's see here. 5-7, this is referring to all the negatives that he has introduced, both in the last chapter and in this, and he went through several of them a moment ago. Therefore, the word therefore is the conclusion which he brings in concerning those things. As a reminder, these are the negatives from the previous four verses. I'll read him again. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this, for this you, oh, here we go. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater as any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, that's the last four verses. So, to be partakers with them, Paul's words, means to share in their behavior. To share in their behavior then means to share in the wrath, which comes with it. Having said, having said that, the sons of disobedience, Paul's words, is referring to the unregenerate. Paul has made a distinction between the unsaved and the saved. And because of this, his words in no way negate the doctrine of eternal salvation. The sons of God already have their inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's found in Ephesians chapter 2. We can go back and look at that here really quickly. Ephesians 2, we're just going to start probably in verse 3 or 4. Let's see here. Verse Ephesians 2. Four, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses, like the guys that he's referring to right now in the previous verses, even while we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our position now. That is where we are. We are no longer unregenerate. We are not being imputed our sins, and therefore we cannot lose our salvation. People that say that once saved, always saved is a heretical doctrine don't know what they're talking about. They have not done their study properly. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there you go. Let's see here. Jody is not going to be here tonight. She says she's just getting out of the office. She'll be disciplined on Sunday. Oh, no, we'll see her on Saturday. Okay, so um, uh, that's nice she tells us that, though, because you always wonder if somebody's in an accident or something. But, uh, yeah, you don't want that. Okay, so there you go. I'll read that again. The sons of God have already received their inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We just saw that in Ephesians 2, and we see it in plenty of other verses, such as in Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. You're guaranteed your inheritance, etc. The sons of disobedience do not have this. Okay, so if we are participating in them and we're going to get the wrath, that means we are going to get judged for rewards and losses at the Bema Seat of Christ. We are not going to lose our salvation. So there's a judgment for unbelievers. There's a judgment for believers. Either way, we want to do what's right. We want to pursue the Lord, and we do not want to be partakers with the sons of disobedience. Thus, Paul says, or I say here, the wrath of God on unbelievers will be worked out in condemnation. The wrath of God towards our sin as believers will be worked out in a loss of rewards. Yes, it is sin. No, we are not being imputed sin. And so you have to make that distinction. Yes, we can sin before the Lord, but the sin is not imputed to us. And that's a giant difference that we need to remember. We'll even talk about that particular issue in the sermon on Sunday, as far as imputation and so on. But I don't want to get into that right now and give away the whole sermon, because then you'll all be sleeping. So, as we have moved into the heavenlies and been seated with Christ, which is what I just read from Ephesians 2, we are not to be partakers of unholy living, but in that which is just, righteous, and holy. Okay, so there, that's our marching orders for verse 5-7, life application. There is nothing at all wrong with associating with the unregenerate. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that if we were not to do so, we would have to go out of this world. However, in associating with unbelievers, we are not to partake with them in any conduct which the Bible forbids. The only way to do this, though, is to know what the Bible says. Hence, I admonish you to read your Bible, okay? Read your Bible, read it again, read it again, and read it again, and then when you get done with that, read it again, okay? Keep reading the Bible. Um, let's see here. I had thought about that when I was driving. What was it? I was just started the book of Acts on my audio Bible today. What was it that went through my mind? I don't remember. Sorry about that. Okay, verse 5-8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Okay, that's almost identical. We're not going to reread it. The Bible is literally filled with concepts of light and darkness, even from the first verses to the very last. All the way through the Bible, light and darkness, light and darkness. A contrast is being made, but it is more than just a literal light and darkness which is being spoken of. Rather, it is quite often speaking of these in a figurative sense. 
This is what Paul is referring to here. The verse is highly emphatic, and it is contrasting what has just been spoken of concerning the sons of disobedience. He begins with, for you were once darkness. He's not talking about physical light, obviously. If he's been talking about sons of disobedience, he's equating disobedience, I think I said obedience, sons of disobedience, he's equating disobedience to darkness. Here, in the, here and in the clause to come, he uses the abstract to speak of the concrete, thus showing the emphasis. In that his readers once were in darkness, it implies that it was their very nature. Anybody disagree with that before you came to Christ? If you came to Christ, if you, you know, some people just, they're little children, they're raised in a Christian family, and they've known the Lord their whole life. And they don't understand the difference between what it was like, because there was really no time they didn't know who Jesus was. And I know some people say, well, you have to have that experience and all that. I disagree with that. If you raise a child properly, you teach them about Jesus from the time that child is, is just a little one, and he receives the premise of Christ. He doesn't need some special experience. He is brought into the family of God through that faith, even as a little child. So um, let's see here. Uh, it implies their very nature. That means the darkness. These are the sons of disobedience. They are in darkness. The word darkness is skotos. It signifies darkness, either physical or moral. Here it is referring to the moral darkness previously mentioned. It is the, this is helps word studies, it is the principle of sin with its certain results. Okay, that's the darkness that Paul is referring to. It's the principle of sin with its certain results. When we sin, something happens. There's always, always something that happens when sin is involved. Even if we don't seem to perceive it, there's always something that happens because God is aware of every single sin that we've ever committed. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday about um, uh, the gospel. I was telling this person about uh, Jesus, and I was uh, reminding them that the Tenth Commandment is the, what is it? The Big Ten, what is the last one? Thou shalt not covet. Covet, there you go. Coveting is something that is only known to you. Nobody else knows it except God. And so for him to put that as a commandment tells you that he is reading all of our thoughts and all of our actions. It's not just something that, oh, if you're coveting, you're doing it internally, and yet he is aware of it. And hence, Jesus says what? Matthew 5, he says, uh, you look at a woman, I think it's Matthew 5, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. He's reading the hearts. That's why it says, I am the one who reads the hearts and minds in the Old Testament and the New Testament that's ascribed to Jesus. Just another confirmation of his deity, because only God can read the hearts and minds. So you see that in the Gospels, you see it in Revelation. Christ is there evaluating us as individuals, which, yes, it's scary because we all have these thoughts, but at the same time, he understands our limitations and our weaknesses, and that's why he came. So at the same time as having a fear of God, we also want to have a thankfulness to God for the fact that he has redeemed us from sin, and he understands what we have gone through and what some of us still go through. You know, if you have an addiction, I don't care what type of addiction it is, it is always going to linger. It's always going to be there in the back of your mind, and you just have to work through it. Some addictions are more debilitating on the mind than others. Some of them are more debilitating on the, the psyche, or not the psyche, the uh, physical aspects like, you know, chemical addictions and stuff, but they're all there, and they're always going to be nagging at you, okay? So, okay. Hebrews 4.12. Hang on a second here. Hebrews. That's, um, that's right before um, 
Exodus, right? Hebrews 4, verse 12. Let's see here. Burke wants me to read that. Oh, yeah, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Absolutely, the intents of the heart right there, the... Uh, the thoughts, the intents of the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of reasoning. That's both Testaments. You're going to see that. If you're talking about emotions in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's going to be the bowels or the visceral organs. In other words, your guts. That's where they, when Paul writes about your emotions, he's talking about this area, whereas the heart is the seat of reasoning, which we don't think of it that way. We think of the brain as the seat of reasoning, but the heart is in the Bible where the seat of reasoning begins, okay? And we use our minds, yes, naturally, but it begins in the heart. So when he speaks of the heart, it's going to be the reasoning. So let me pick that up so I have this where I need it, okay? And then, let's see, good, that was a great verse for that, the discerner of the hearts and the minds. All right, so um, uh, the darkness was, when we were unregenerate, the darkness was our nature. We were infected with sin. We could do nothing but pursue sin. We were bound by the law. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 7. Let me take you there. And oh, some of the most wonderful, exuberant verses in the Bible are to be found, I think, in Romans 7. I don't know if we're going to go through all of that or not, but um, let's see here. We're going to start in Romans 7, verse 8. No, I'm going to start in verse, oh no, yeah, 7. I'm going to start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would, have, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. As soon as he tells you, you shall not covet, all of a sudden you start coveting. And you do it in a way which sin results. Okay, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You can't have any sin imputed if there is no law. If you're in a, a town and they've never established a driving, uh, you know, a, uh, a speed, speed limit, thank you, then you can't be given speeding. a ticket for speeding. That's right. You do whatever you want. But as soon as the law says that you have to go 40 miles an hour and you go 42, you are now a lawbreaker. And that's the way the law works. There is no imputation of sin where there is no law. And hence, when God gave Adam a law. He gave him one law, and he gave it to him in the negative, and he did it. Sin entered the world, and that was all part of the plan. It had to come about in order for certain things to, to occur, and as I said, you know, at the uh, somewhere towards the end of Revelation, that we will have so much more in paradise when we are in the presence of God because we have the knowledge of sin. We have the knowledge of where we were and what God was willing to do to get us out of that state. We would never have known that. We could never have even contemplated that or considered it in any way, shape, or form without having sin in the world. So that when we enter glory and when we are in the presence of God, we will understand completely how magnificent what Jesus Christ did was. It's going to be beyond our comprehension. We're never going to get over it. People that say that you're not going to have any memory of stuff in the past are completely wrong. That is the purpose of us knowing the things we've done is so that we can glorify God for all eternity for what he did to get us out of the mess we're in. Okay, but sin taking opportunity 
by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, think of Adam, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life could live forever in the garden. It didn't. Instead, he says, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, once again, keep thinking of the, the uh, Garden of Eden, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. It's, you know, it's just the way that things are. God is infinitely wise, and he saw that the path that we are on is way better than any other option, and so we're going through this world. And we may hate what's going on right now with our government, with people being persecuted over issues that would never have been considered even a year or two ago. There are people that have been locked down. I think it's in Melbourne. Somebody sent me a link today. I think it's been 249 days or something. They just set a world record of lockdown. You know, you think how bad it is and how absolutely crazy the things are in the world, but there is something better for the redeemed of the Lord. We have a hope that transcends these things, and we will say, wow, thank God for Jesus when we get out of here. But in the meantime, this is a part of what God has allowed so that we can understand the depravity that humans will go to. I mean, you think of these people that are in the government right now. You think of these people. And they've been in the government, especially that woman in charge of the House and the guy that's in the president's seat right now. They've been in the, there for 40 and 50 years. They've been doing this. And they started out probably thinking, I'm going to do a great job and I'm going to be a great congressman or a great senator or a great president someday. And now look at how depraved they've become. And it's because of the old saying, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And every step more they get, the more they corrupt. They're completely vile, wicked people now, just completely. You know, somebody emailed me and she asked about praying for the uh, people in government, you know, because Paul says, pray for those so that you can have peace, all right? Peace, live peaceable lives, I think is how he says it. She said, I, I, I'm having a really tough time with this. And she said, this is what I think about praying for them. And she gave me, I think, the 80-something 80-something psalm. Might not have been. It might have been like 139. I don't remember the psalm, but it was all just calling curses down on them. And I said, absolutely. I said, you know what? The only thing when I pray for these people, the only thing I do is pray for their salvation. I say, Lord, I would pray that they would come to know you. And that's it. Other than that, I hope they fall and chip their tooth today because they are vile. They're literally vile people. And we cannot live peaceably with people like that. It's not possible. So unless they come to Christ, there is no peaceable life. So I have no problem praying for their salvation, and then after that, that they would just be removed, just the way the psalm says. Get rid of these wicked people. So I, I, I know that that's something that some people will not appreciate me saying, but listen, that's just the way it is. We are God hears all prayers. They, well, yeah, he hears all he prayers, hears, that's right. He, there, so. And he also hears all thoughts. So I'm not doing any lying to God by telling him that I would like these people removed. He already knows that. We just talked about that a minute ago, right? He's reading he my thoughts. He knows what I want. So for me to pray for these people to be saved is great. All right? That's all that I can pray for them. I can't pray for their prosperity because if I do, they're going to just be more wicked with it. They're they, already they, prosperous. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so let's get off politics, Charlie. But I'm sorry about that. But I just... You know, I understand her, and I told her, I feel exactly as you do. It's not like you're alone. I remember mom saying that to me a couple of years ago when things weren't that bad, you know? But there's a point where you just have to say, Lord, these are your people. You created them. 
I pray for their salvation, and that's all I can do. I, I have nothing else to give them. Proverbs says that he controls us like the stream. Yeah, that's and, right. And, and that, that's all we can hold to. Is, that's all we can hold to is that God has a purpose. He is winding this world according to his wisdom, and we just have to live through it, and we have to trust that what he is doing is right. Okay? So we just, you're right. You know, that's... That's all I can give it. That's all, you know, I, I can't be a liar to God and say, oh, you know, I really want to have a prosperous life with these people. At this point, I don't. I want them to come to Christ or I want them to be removed. Those are the only two things that I can think of. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, I read that we're in, oh, we're in, uh, yeah, we just read Romans 7, 8 through 11. The darkness, once again, going back to Paul's words, darkness can be equated with the death which results from the law. However, Paul next says, but now you are light in the Lord. Think of these people. If they do come to Christ, we have a national calamity. Everything, the ball drops, and it's like New York City that we were reading about in that commentary a little while ago. If the ball were to drop and everything were to go south and the leaders actually humbled themselves, okay, you could, they could be light in the Lord. They could be redirecting this nation once again to the values that it once held to. Not holding my breath on that, but it is possible. And you know how I know that it's possible? I'll tell you how I know it's possible. It's because there was a guy named Paul that was on the way to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 9, the Lord sovereignly intervened. Now, I'm not saying he's going to do that in this nation and come and show himself. I don't believe that. But he, oh, he will. Well, yeah. At <laughs> some point, he will. But, you know, I, I'm not talking about some vision that somebody's going to have and say, okay, that's just not it. But he will reveal himself through his mercy during a calamity or whatever, whatever way he chooses, and it can happen. If he can change Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, who is now Paul, then he can change any of these people. You know, there's people, there are people in Israel that are absolutely, they hate the Messianic Christians. They chase them down, they're, they're, they protest against them, they try to, uh, you know, they do terrible things on their doorstep. I mean, just anything you can think of, they literally hate them. And there's a couple leaders in this movement that are just, and I keep thinking, that could be the next Paul. That could be the guy that literally changes attitudes in Israel. And so I will pray for him in that respect, but I can't pray for what he's doing and for his peace, because if he has peace and contentment, he's going to keep doing what he's doing. He needs to have something to wake him up from it. If not, you're, all you're doing is you're wasting your breath towards people. People need to have the heart changed before anything else. Anyway. Um, Let's see here. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. The Greek word is phos and indicates, think of phosphorus, okay, light, a source of light or radiance. It speaks of light, but especially, this helps word studies words here, especially in terms of its results, what it manifests. In the New Testament, the manifestation of God's self-existent life, his divine illumination to reveal and impart life through Christ. That is the fuss that he is speaking of. This light then can be equated with the life of Paul's words in Romans. In fact, John shows this close connection to the words, to the two words when speaking of Jesus. In John 1, 4, and 5, he specifically says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He ties them almost as synonymous. They're not, but they're almost and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some versions say did not overcome it. 
okay? Either way, then the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The life that we have is given to us in place of the law, which brought death. How did this happen? It is because Christ fulfilled the law for us. When we received his gift of fulfilling the law, we die to the law. New life has come. Everybody understand that? Christ came under the law. We are all going to be judged by a standard. We might not be under the law, but we are going to be judged by a standard. God's standard is the law. I am perfectly holy. My holiness is demonstrated in this law. If you can meet this, then you have met the requirements for coming into my presence. This is what the law is for. Okay, nobody can meet that standard. Even if it's not the law of Moses, it has to be the standard which is equal to the law of Moses. Okay, but he gave it to Israel to show us that we cannot meet the law of Moses. And he was very, very specific. And I quote this verse as much as I can so that you can remember it. Leviticus 18, verse 5. The man who does the things of the law will live by them. In other words, if you can perform this law, you will have life. It's that simple. And like I said, when I did that uh, evaluation of that verse during the Leviticus series, people, all these commentators were saying, well, you can have life abundantly. It means you can have life without pains. Or you, they, they came up with all these things, and that completely is not what Moses is speaking about, or the Lord through Moses is speaking about. Not at all. He is speaking about life. If you do the things of the law, you will live. To live means to not die. die. Right. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about having abundant life. He's not talking about going to your grave in peace or anything like that. He is talking about having life. And the reason why we know that is because when the law was introduced to Adam and he didn't do the things of the law, he died. Okay. That is what that's speaking about. So God gave Jesus the law, or he gave Israel the law. Israel failed in the law. We know this all the way through the Old Testament because every person in the Old Testament, without fail, every one of them died. There's one exception who was taken before he died, but that's for a different reason, okay? But all of the people under the law died. In fact, in the book of Acts, it says that, you know, David prophesied about uh, not seeing corruption. And he says, but there's his tomb. We're looking at it right now, guys. It's, obviously, David was not speaking about himself. And if he's not speaking about himself, this is Charlie Garrett's paraphrase, okay? I'm not quoting it. I'm just telling you what he said. Then it must be speaking of the Messiah to come. And that is Jesus whom we proclaim. So you have the law. If you don't do the things of the law, you die. If you do the things of the law, you live. That's God's standard. And so Christ was born in Israel. He wasn't born over in Japan. He was born where he gave his standard to the world, in Israel. That means that Christ was born under the law. The law is what condemns or the law is what gives life. That's the only two options. They can't do anything else. That's the purpose of the law. So he was born capable of taking away sin because he was born without sin. His father is God. His mother is a human being. So he's fully qualified to do the things of the law as a human being, but he's doing it without sin because he did not inherit Adam's sin because he had no human father, and sin travels from father to child. Okay, so this is what's going on with the, uh, the law and our inability to live it out. Christ comes, he's capable of taking away our sins. Now he's born under the law, but that means he has to also be qualified to take away our sins. 
And that is what the Gospels are for, is to show that he was born under the law without sin, but he also lived under the law without sin. And at the end of his life, he said, nobody takes my life from me. Once again, Charlie Garrett paraphrase, I lay it down of myself, okay? And I have the power to take it up again. How can he do that? Because he is not sinned. And so he lives the law. He lives out the law. He is both capable and qualified. He dies in fulfillment of the law. The reason why it's fulfillment of the law is because when the law is fulfilled by somebody, there is no longer any purpose for the law. Does everybody see that? If one person can fulfill the law, there's no longer any purpose for the law. And that's why it says in Hebrews 7, 13, 7 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9 that he made the law obsolete, he annulled it, and he set it aside. This is what Christ came to do. The law, when he fulfilled the law through his righteousness, his not violating the law, the law ended with him. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14, that the law was nailed. That's right, nailed to the cross. Christ was the one that was nailed to the cross, but it, because he fulfilled the law, the law was nailed. And when Christ died, the law died. It no longer has any effect on any person that comes to him. Now, anybody that doesn't come to him, the law is still alive because it has that effect on all people, okay? But for those who come to Christ, the law is dead. Anybody or any nation, the nation of Israel is separate than the people, okay? They, there's national redemption in Israel, and there's personal salvation. Those are two separate issues. I don't want to confuse that. But anybody that comes to Christ now moves from Adam to Christ, and the law is fulfilled. Christ was capable of taking away our sins. He was qualified to do so. He did do so. When we come to him, our sins are taken away. That's in a nutshell what the law was there for. He did that for us, and now we are no longer imputed sins. That's 2 Corinthians 5.19, because he, we are not under law any longer. It's annulled, set aside, nailed to the cross, and uh, obsolete. Okay. Address license. It's what? Address license. So it's not to confuse anybody. Oh, license. License, he wants me to address the issue of license. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are no longer imputed sin. But we still can sin. I said that a while ago. I can still do moral wrongdoing. I can still violate what God expects of me as a Christian. Okay? And that's what the epistles are for, is to give us the doctrine to live in a manner which is acceptable to God. License is saying, I am saved. I know I'm saved because Jesus saved me, and I believe that premise, but now I can go do whatever I want to do. Okay? It is true. You can do that. The Bible doesn't say that you can't do that. You can physically do that. But he says it's wrong to do that. Not just Paul, but all of the apostles agree with that. It is morally wrong to do that. You can, but you're not supposed to. And so there is this tension in the lives of a believer. I have something that I want that I shouldn't have. I know that I can get it, and I know I'm not going to lose my salvation over it. And so I'm going to do it anyway. That's license. That is license. It's saying, I am going to do something despite the position I'm supposed to be living in Christ. Okay? Today, I could go do something that the New Testament forbids. Right? I'm Does anybody here disagree with that? You're not going to lose your salvation, but God knows. He's reading your heart, and he is going to judge you for that. Not for condemnation, because you're not being imputed sin, but for rewards and losses. And so that is license. It is not doing what we should be doing in Christ Jesus. Yes? But 
Many are weak and sickly, and many sleep. That's right, many sleep. So let's go to that right there, because I read that every single week during the communion, because that's part of the communion. He's telling us that. That is a precept. That's exactly right. That is a precept of the instructions for the Lord's Supper. That is something that we are to do. The epistles give us what we're supposed to do. And it says here, we'll just start at verse 23, and we're going to go right down towards the end, not all the way to the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken. He died. The law is done. It's a new covenant which is established in his blood. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, Here it is. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. If there's a new covenant, then the old covenant has no effect on those in the new covenant. The old covenant has an effect on those who have not come to the new covenant. That's why Jeremiah 31, 31 is so important for Israel to understand. But for right now, this is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming that he died. He took us out of the misery that we are under in the law. He has taken it away from us and given us a new commandment or a new covenant. And because he's given us a new covenant, we are remembering the act of his death until he comes. Okay, same thing. It's the same thing with baptism. Baptism is the same thing. It is a memorial of what Christ did. It is an open and public demonstration of the work of Jesus Christ, just like the Lord's Supper is. And actually, if you think about it, this was before he was crucified. The Lord, after he was crucified, told us and resurrected, he told us to baptize. Okay, so people that say you don't need to be baptized are wrong. R-O-N-G. They're wrong. Okay, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, here's what Burke was talking about. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Can you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Absolutely. You can do it. Anybody can do it. But there are penalties for doing so. And that's what Paul is telling them right there. You can sin. You can commit adultery. You can do all of those things, but you're not supposed to. When I say can, it means actually. I'm not talking about I allow you or the Bible allows you. The Bible doesn't allow you, but you can do it. Okay. So for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That's the result of not doing what you're supposed to do. So that's a perfect example, and there are plenty of other examples like that in Scripture. This is what you are to do, and if you don't do what you're supposed to do, there will be consequences. Some of them will be in this life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, take you three minutes to read it. Some of them will be afterward at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5. It'll talk about that. But this is what we are supposed to do. It doesn't mean that we actually are doing it or that we, you know, have to do it. I'm talking about the necessity. We can sin. License. Is that good? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's okay. nail in the head thing. All right. That's, that's what license is. We are not to actively pursue wrongdoing when we're told not to. And we're given those instructions in the New Testament epistles. Okay. That's where our 
instruction about the churches, and also in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Those are addressed to the church, not to Jewish synagogues. They're not for the end times. They are for our doctrine now before the rapture, okay? If you read them and you come to any other conclusion, then you are wrong. Okay, so, um, and I don't mean to be arrogant about it. It's just that's the way it is. It is incorrect theology to say that those don't pertain to us. Just because it's Jewish symbolism doesn't mean anything. Everything in the New Testament is Jewish symbolism. And when I say Jewish, I'm talking about symbolism that came from the life of the Jews, okay, which means the Old Testament scriptures. There were no New Testament scriptures until they were written, and they were written by people that had the perspective of what happened in the Old Testament. When Paul says, let us keep the feast, he's talking about an Old Testament feast. When he says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, it's because he's using that as a reference. Okay, so the light, the light. Oh, I've already read that. Uh, light and life. The life that we have is given to us in place of the law which brought death. How did this happen? It is because Christ fulfilled the law for us. When we receive his gift of fulfilling the law, we die to the law. New life has come. The darkness of death is defeated, and we become light, children of light. In this new state, Paul admonishes us to, to therefore walk as children of light. We are shown to not just reflect light, but we actually are radiating light. This is why even in the Old Testament, it was understood that we, Gentiles, would so shine forth as is stated, for example, several places in Isaiah, but we'll take you to Isaiah chapter 60, okay? There are several times that he speaks about the Gentiles being included in what God is going to do. Even Moses did. Rejoice, O Gentiles, or nations, with his people, right? The very middle psalm, the very middle of the Bible, the very middle of the Bible is the 117th psalm. I'll read you Isaiah in a second. We'll go to the 117th Psalm. It is, oh, I'm going the wrong way because I'm in Isaiah. Hello, Charlie. Um, we'll go to Psalm 117. It is the very, 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 very middle chapter of the Bible because there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, which means that there is a middle chapter, okay? The middle chapter is the 117th Psalm. It is also the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. Psalm 117, praise the Lord. All you Gentiles or nations, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. There you go. 117th Psalm. It's the anchor verse. If you go in either direction, that's the anchor verse of the Bible. It starts out with the Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Okay, so. Now, I've lost my place in Isaiah 60 because I was going to read something else. Here it is. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light. It's speaking of the Messiah. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Once again, there's one gospel, there's one savior, there's one gospel, and it goes to both Jew and to Gentile. There are not two things going on in God's redemptive purposes in that regard. There's one gospel. 
There are different things going on as far as the nation of Israel, the individual Israelite, etc. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is one message that is going out to all people of the world. Okay, so Isaiah 60. In that we have come to the light of Christ, we now shine forth with that same light. And once again, we're not talking about physical light. We're talking about who we are in Christ and how we should be conducting our lives. And when we're doing it properly, we are that light. And people say, I want to know what that guy is doing because he's always happy. I want to know what makes him tick because he seems so well-grounded in life. And they'll say, what is it that makes you different? And you say, Jesus, that is our job. And that is the light that Paul is speaking about. Okay. Life has replaced death. Light has replaced darkness. As we have been born into new life through Christ's fulfillment of the law, so we also have been born into light and how to walk in this world. And that's what Paul goes all the way through his epistles. He uses the word walk 9,722 times. Okay, that's an exaggeration. He uses it a lot, though. When he says walk, that is how you conduct your life. Walk in this manner. Walk according to what I have said. Walk, walk, walk. He's always telling you to walk. And I, once again, I was kidding about the 9,000 times. Okay, I don't want somebody saying, well, that's not true. Okay, so anyway, he once and again and again talks about walking. That is the conduct of your life, okay? So we're to walk in this world. The emphasis of this verse then is given to show that just as we were once darkness, yes, we were, like sons of disobedience, we are now children of light. We are not to participate any longer in that which is contrary to our new nature. And most of the things that the epistles will tell us we should do or to refrain from are moral issues. There are a few things that, you know, we have to do just because we're supposed to do it in this context or that. But most of the things that Paul delineates are things that the Old Testament also spoke of. They are moral issues. Don't do this. You know, sexual immorality is just lumped together by Paul again and again and again. He will define it, you know, this type and this type and this type and this type. But in the end, sexual immorality is having sex outside of the bonds of marriage to Paul and to Jesus. You go right to the last page of the Bible and Jesus says it's sexually immoral. It's a quote, you know, some people can debate whether it's Jesus that says it or whether it's the angel messenger quoting Jesus or whatever. But where is it? It says here, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So there it is. It's moral issues right there on the last page of the Bible. Don't do these things. But a couple others are not just moral. They're also physical, like murder, okay? But they're idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. They all fall into the moral category more than anything else. Okay, you look at the uh, uh, Ten Commandments and you've got the moral laws and they... That kind of is a summary of them. So the same things that God detests in the Old Testament, he detests in the New. All right, but we're not under law, we're under grace once again. So uh, we want to do the things that we are told in the epistles to be pleasing to God. Okay, that's the main thing we want to get across there. Okay, so. All but, uh, all but one of the Ten Commandments was repeated. That's right. They are all repeated in the New Testament, except the Sabbath. That is not mandated in any way, shape, or form, because it says in Hebrews 4, 3, Burke, now we who, that's right, now we who believe do enter that rest. And it took him, you know, if you, we'll be in the book of Hebrews in just a couple weeks, I'm sure. Maybe not. It'll be a while. But if you want to read the commentary, it's all written out there for you. He talks about the rest of God. God rested. 
uh, it, today. He goes on, rest, 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 rest. And he's talking about beforehand, afterhand. He goes, he's speaking about the rest of God, the rest of God. And he's speaking about referring to the Sabbath. Being in Christ is. Now we who believe do enter that rest. Okay. What's that? I think it's 4 3. I'm 100% certain of that. If I'm wrong, I will give you $1,000. Hang on. Is that hyperbole? No, I would do it. Let's see here. For we who have believed do enter that rest. There you go. I saved $1,000. I, I was certain about that. Okay. Um, I would have worked a little. I, I got a part-time job. I would have done it. What was that? Hebrews 4, 3. But you have to take all of it in context, okay? Because, he, like I said, chapter 3, chapter 4, he, he talks about the rest, but he is very specific that when you believe, you enter the rest that I'm talking about in all of these other areas. So um, it's a great verse to know. But Paul also dismisses the Sabbath elsewhere. So here's another verse for you would be Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let me take you there. And uh, then there's another one I'll give you in just a second, but we'll go to Colossians first. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you. And then what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament mandates. Let no one judge you in regard to food. That's um, Leviticus chapter 11, the dietary laws, or drink, same thing. Or regarding a festival, that would be the Feast of the Lord, Leviticus 23, or a new moon, which is never really defined in the, uh, the it's not something that's defined, but it is celebrated all the way through the Old Testament. So somehow the new moon is something that they did that is mandated for Israel, or Sabbaths. And the reason why it's plural is because there are 52 Sabbaths in a year. You've got a full year worth of uh, uh, seventh days. And there are other Sabbaths as well. You've got the day of Yom Kippur, uh, uh, the day of atonement is considered a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath. Uh, 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 it's a Sabbath. Okay. And there's one or two other Sabbaths that are mentioned in the law of Moses. And we went through them. I can't remember them right now and I'm not going to try, but you've got the weekly Sabbaths and you've got these defined Sabbaths, just a couple of them. But uh, because those are Sabbaths, Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in accordance with those he says, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. What he's saying is all those things were just anticipating Jesus. And so as I tell people, they want, you want to be in the Hebrew roots? Is that what you want to do? You want to observe the feasts of the Lord? Well, all you have is a shadow. And when you try to grab a shadow, what happens? It's gone. But if you take Christ, you get him and the shadow. You get the fulfillment of what they were only looking for. Okay? So, Colossians 2, 16, 17, and then the last one before we get back into uh, Ephesians is Romans 14, verse 5, and he says there, let me take you there, this is, to, this is Paul, I mean, he's telling us, he's giving us our church age doctrine, he says, one person esteems one day above another, he's speaking about Sabbaths or about feast days or anything, just a general note, another esteems every day alike. Well, I don't go to church on Sunday. They're all the, I'm worshiping the Lord every day. They're all the same to me. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. And here's why he says that. He who observes the day, whatever day, if it's a feast day, if it's the, the uh, day that you go to church, whatever. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And then he follows that with the same premise for food, which I won't get into, but the food and the, uh, in other words, he's refuting the Hebrew roots movement right there in Romans 14 and Colossians 2 and etc. So, um, and there are other verses, but those are the main ones that you can just be assured that uh, anyway, if, this, if the fourth commandment was still binding, and because it's not, that means that the entire law of Moses is done. 
including all Ten Commandments, but they are repeated in the New Testament. I don't want to scare people away. That's why we don't do those things is because they're repeated in the New Testament. But if the Fourth Commandment was still binding on us, then every one of us is sinning every single week when we're not here all day on Saturday, right? Because the Sabbath is not a particular day like Sunday or Monday. It is Saturday. That is the Sabbath. It is the uh, the uh, first day of, I'm sorry, the last day of the week, uh, the seventh day of the week. Thank you. And so we would all be in violation of the Bible continuously because you're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to pick anything up on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to, all these rules and rules and rules heaped up on them to make a point about Jesus. That was the whole purpose of it is they were looking forward to Jesus. So every one of us is condemned. We're all going to hell because we're not meeting here on Saturday. It doesn't work that way. If the fourth commandment is done, which it is, then all of the Mosaic code is done and we have a new code in the New Testament. If it repeats precepts from the old covenant, great. If it doesn't, you're not obligated to them. And for every person that tells you, oh yes, you've got to observe the Sabbath, ask them why they're not walking around without tassels on their garments. And where's the blue cord in that tassel that you're supposed to have? Nobody does that, but that's one of the laws. And James is very clear. If you break one law, the law, that's right, the law is broken. It's done. So it's a hypocritical thing in the extreme to say, I observe the Sabbath, and so I'm more holy than you. Okay, we'll go on. Um, let's see here. Uh, which we are now children of light. We are not to participate any longer in that which is contrary to our new nature. As a fine point of theology, this verse, the one that we're looking at right now, when properly considered, once again, demonstrates the doctrine of eternal salvation. The law is fulfilled for us. We are dead to it. We have taken on a new nature. Paul shows that we can go back and do the things of darkness. So does Peter. Remember we read a week or two ago about 2 Peter 1, and we went, start here and get down to verse 9. We went through the whole thing, and he says, if you don't do these things, you're, you're, forget that you're saved. The person just is completely abandoned everything, and yet he's still saved. I won't go through it now, but anyway, Paul shows that we can go back and do the things of darkness, but they do not change our new nature. Those deeds are simply contrary to it. We have not gone merely from being in darkness to being in light. Instead, we have gone from being darkness to being light. That's the difference, and it's a big difference. The emphatic nature of Paul's words are intended to show this is an absolute truth. We're not just, you know, in one or in the other. We are being that thing because of Christ. We have taken on a new nature, and Paul explains that very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? The old man, the new man, etc. okay? And he explains it elsewhere as well. Let me make a note here, okay? Life application. If you have called on Christ, the light of Christ now dwells in you. Arise, shine forth. Your light has come. Don't enter again into darkness, but rather radiate out that marvelous truth that you are now a son of God, fully redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, it's just unbelievable. Think about it. It's just unbelievable. What God has done for us is simply beyond comprehension. I, uh, Claudia, she said, don't say unbelievable. I can't help it. It's just the only word that I've always used. And I said, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to not do that. I even say to myself, God, you're so unbelievable. 
and she well it's because yeah the, the word unbelievable means it can't be believed but that's not the way i use it and when sergio and i are talking about jesus we say that to each other like 20 times an hour oh it's unbelievable you know i'll i'll message him something that i am doing in a sermon and he'll come back and say incredible or that's unbelievable or yeah well here's another word that's been dashed from our god talk is uh awful awful yeah awful Awful, and we don't use it that way anymore. Yeah, because because it's awful. Uh, Okay. Even killed. Yeah, you know what? And that's that's true. Is that there are a lot of words that in scripture that were put in there during translations that were intended for a certain purpose, like you know, God is holy, God is just, and God is righteous. And now in the movies, you say, "Oh, that's righteous, man!" Right? You know, we we have taken every word that we can use. Awesome. God is awesome. And what do you hear in a Marvel comic movie now? He's awesome. You know, we've taken every single word that should be considered special to God. And we've, we've, and I think that's purposeful. I think people use words in order to diminish the God that they don't love. I, I could be wrong on that, but I think that's probably what happens is that we just run out of words to properly convey the majesty of God because we just abuse them. Anyway, um, okay, verse 5 9. Oh, 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 oh yes, oh, oh, Burke has got some. Hold on. Whoa. Oh. Two things. Yes. The word wonderful. Wonderful. I had a teacher that told me you got to reserve some words for the Lord. Yeah. Wonderful is one of them. Right. Time and again, a clerk will say, Have a wonderful day. Yeah. And I say, That's an Isaiah 9 6 word. That's right. Do you know that? And some don't have any... They don't have a clue even who Isaiah is. But I had a black woman that was cutting me. Oh, I knows him, she says. Uh-huh. I knows him. Oh, boy. <laughs> so that was good. Now, can we discuss what you said before you started teaching about the little child learning on their way up? What about it? Okay. John 3, 3 says you must be born again. Right. John 3, 18. I know you know these things. Yeah. He that believe it is not condemned. Right. At the age of 10, I had been in church all of my life. Right. But I had to call upon the Lord. I understand so, it. You know what? I can, I've said this to people, though. I have talked to children that are three and four years old, and I've said, do you understand that you've done wrong? And they know they have because it's in us. We have that knowledge. And you say, do you know that? You will be judged by God for that. And they understand that too. They, uh, even though they don't know exactly who God is, if you approach it properly with them and you say, this is something that God is unhappy with. This is called sin. And you have offended God because of that. Do you understand it? Yes, I do. And they don't know how to get out of that. And you say, do you know that there's a person named Jesus that died for you? I've heard of Jesus. What does that mean? He died for me. It means that he died to take away your sin. And a three-year-old can understand that. I have no problem understanding that a little child is saved when, yeah. The word is there, they can't do it. That's right. But they have to do it. And that, oh, and I agree. And that's why I'm saying if a parent is properly raising their child and telling them that this is what God expects of you and this is what he will do if you don't do what he expects, then they will properly raise their child. And the child may not even remember the day that happened. But I'm saying that you have to be born again. And I understand. I don't diminish that. I'm just simply saying that a parent that properly raises that child will get that child saved as soon as it knows right and wrong. And what is it? That's right out of the book of Isaiah. 
It's before the child knows to whatever. Remember, speaking of Maharshalal Hashbaz, I think, anyway. In other words, a little child can come to us a knowledge of what is right and wrong. And at that point, they can be saved. But before that point, if the parents are saved, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, the, parent, the child is sanctified through the believing parent. So there, there is a time of an umbrella. But I suggest to every single person that has children or grandchildren, if the parents aren't living for the Lord, to do their due responsibility and to tell that person about Jesus as soon as they can. Because we don't know what God is doing. All we can do is make our best guesses. But I do agree. A child must be born again. A child must receive Jesus. I don't doubt that in any way. But my point was that that parent has to be the one that is... Oh. I have a oh. question but I can save for later. I don't care. As long as... So for me, my perspective is opposite. I didn't come to the Lord until I was 30. Right. So before that, I can acknowledge like I was living essentially for the devil. Oh, yeah? complete darkness. So I have understanding of praise. That's right. That's right. And that would be that would be just like one Peter what I talked to, I you might not have been here that week, but I talked about two Peter one nine. And he tells you what to do to keep that from happening. Now, a little child is saved and he's in church and he loves Jesus and eventually gets into high school or college nowadays and he starts falling away from the world because he's not staying close to the Lord. I'm not going to read you the whole thing and go through the whole analysis because it will take a while. We can talk about it together alone um, or send me an email and I can, uh, you know, or you could go watch whatever Bible study I said this in, but it, it'd take about 15 minutes and I don't want to, I don't well, want to. What are you looking for? Let me just say something about that because I didn't come to Christ until I was in my 50s. So, and I knew of Jesus and I knew that he died on the cross and I knew all the things because my Catholic upbringing. Right. But the thing was, is that I, I, I had the calluses and the, the scars that we all have, because right. like you know, I I've been, I know people that have been like Christians since they were like this high, and like you know, I'm like thinking to my, do I do I envy them or do I feel sorry for them? Because they really haven't had the wear and tear of knowing how bad we are. Yeah. I am, but they can it's also like, see they do have the ability to observe other people. They do, and so there there is a knowledge that I don't want to go there. But 2 Peter, if you read 2 Peter 1, start in just verse 2 and go down to verse 9, it tells you what to do. But verse 9, he says, for he who lacks these things, like a kid that gets into high school and just stops reading the Bible, stops going to church. I'll tell you an example about that in just a second. Even to blind, uh, he is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So that can happen to anybody, even a child that was raised in a good family that, and here's an example. I don't want to get too personal because it's somebody that, you know, you may meet on life's path, but I was a, uh, believe it or not, I taught, you know, uh, Sunday school to kids, little, okay. I, wow. I know, that's amazing. I know, and I did that for that's about four or five right? years. I won't give the church, okay, but I, I was very careful to always tell them about salvation, about their need to stay close to Jesus. They all, they were all right in lockstep, just as you were saying, okay? And I met one of them last night. And after about 30 seconds of just 
hugging each other and, you know, just, it was so nice to see you again after it's been about 12 years. I said, where are you going to church? Oh, I, I don't need church. I mean, it was complete. And this is a one that was very close in the class as far as pursuing the Lord. And he was, he was like, I don't need that right now. He says, and he says, I'm spiritually okay. And he was, and he's talking almost like not Christian spiritually okay, if you know what I'm saying. And so he, he was really actually shocked that I asked him because he was like, now I'm going to have to answer something. And, you know, one of those deals. But uh, it, so it, it can happen and it can happen real quickly. All you do is you just stop going to Bible study. And I'm not saying come to Charlie's Bible study. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying wherever you are, stop going to Bible study, stop reading the word, stop talking to the Lord. And your life is just going to get just like this. It's like anything else. If you're in football and you, uh, you know, you stop playing football because of an injury for six months and you don't, you know, keep up your uh, exercising, you're going to be no good on the, the field after a couple months. That's, you know, you got spiritual, you got physical, you got all these things that you are supposed to, uh, you know, exercise. And when you don't, you lose it. And so that's why, you know, I, I think I said this just a couple weeks ago, but I'm serious when I say this. I sometimes get up and force myself to read the Bible. I've got so much to do in the day ahead, and I open up the emails, which I should never do before I read the Bible. And there's 127 emails, and I just think, and then I close that, and I say, I am going to read this Bible. I am not going to change this routine. This is the most important priority of my life is this book and then i'll get to all those oh it just you know i said to somebody just recently that the the most time consuming part of my life the most time consuming is emails and i know people are always saying well you should have a secretary do that or blah blah blah. you know i'm sorry this is my responsibility to these people and i don't know which ones are important emails and i don't want to know which ones aren't important and i'm not going to have somebody else decide that for me some people have valid questions, and some people just want to email 400 times a day. There's not time for that. But it is the most time-consuming part of my life. And so I, I, it's important. It's an important part of my life, and so I do it. But this Bible comes first. And I sometimes have to, have to force myself to do that. But read your Bible. Don't get away from the Word and try to keep... You know, if you don't go to a Bible study, then do a Bible reading like the Bible commentary I'm doing and tell yourself, I am going to commit to reading this every single day. Listen, Charlie gets up every day at four o'clock and he types this. It takes, you know, from how long? We'll say an hour, an hour and a half to type one of those, whatever. I do this every single day. If he can spend the time doing it, I can do it during the day, spend the time to read it, okay? And I'm not saying to do that. I'm giving you an example of something, okay? I'm just giving you an example from my perspective. Okay, but I really think, and I said this during the, uh, uh, oh, I said it during the study last week. I'm not going to say it again. The book of Acts is a really important book to know. I, I just, it's the one thing that I think people really should follow Everyone along with. It. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a fun book, but it's also very, very important to know what's going on so that you can perceive what is happening in redemptive history. And a lot of it is laid out in the first three days of commentaries. You're going to see some wonderful patterns and stuff that, that uh, are in there, and you're going to say, wow, that's, in as a matter of fact, wait, I won't worry about it. Now, let's, let's go on, because we're going to run out of time. as it is used. Yeah, that's right. Your faith grows as it is used. It, 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 just the opposite. If you 
don't use it it's going to diminish it's going to diminish that is exactly right okay we got time we got 14 minutes and we got another verse before we go five nine or did we just yes nope. five nine but the fruit of the light consists in all goodness righteousness and truth okay five nine i'm going to make sure that matches kind of what you just said five nine uh, for the fruit of the Spirit is, yes, in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So it's very, very close. Okay, um, this verse is parenthetical. Excuse me for just a second. Oh, poor Hitiko. She freaked out. She thought I was going to die a day ago. She brought me some McDonald's, and I started to eat it. Because, you know, and it got stuck. And she thought, he's, he's gone this time. You know, it, air does. If air will plug this thing up, I'm telling you, you get the wrong thing in it and it gets stuck and there's nothing I can do. And she thought I, I lost. This is yesterday or the day He's before. recommended the Bahama Mama. The Bahama Mama. That'll do it every time. 7-Eleven Bahama Mama goes down so smoothly. Okay, here we go. This verse is parenthetical, as is evident when seen together with the surrounding verses. I'll read all three of them. For... You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Here comes the parentheses. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Ten, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Now I'm going to take out verse nine, and I'm going to read him again. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So you can see that it's parenthetical, okay? It is the work of the Spirit which has brought us from darkness and made us light in the Lord. And because of this, light is our new nature. In order to describe that nature, we are told what that means by the words, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says that it is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. These attributes are set in contrast to those negative things detailed at the end of chapter 4 as well as those noted in the previous verses of this chapter. We just, he read them just a little while ago. Paul gives us a list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Let me take you there. Galatians 5. Yep, 5, that's correct. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against these, uh, against such there is no law. So there's some of the fruits of the Spirit, okay? These are the things which come from a right application of the Word of God in our lives. It is the Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture. And so in order to know what is right and appropriate according to the Word of God, we need to know what he has, de what he has detailed for us. This includes Paul's letters, which were given by divine inspiration. Anyone who thinks that they will, by default, have the fruit of the Spirit without studying and applying the Word of God is self-deluded. And that's why it's such a catastrophe to walk into Pentecostal churches where no person has ever brought a Bible, has never read the Bible once in their life unless they were at a funeral reading a part of it. It's, it's terrible how they say, well, this, let the Spirit come down on you. And everybody, we, we've got the fruit of the Spirit. They, you cannot. You cannot have the fruit of the Spirit unless you know what the Spirit expects of you. And you can't know what that is unless you read the Word of God. It is impossible. It doesn't, God doesn't just beam things into your mind when you become a Christian. You have to actually apply yourself and study and contemplate and chew on it and meditate on it. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. And you're certainly wasting the time of the Lord who hung on a cross to bring you to the state of salvation in the first place. 
Okay, so it, it, it's a catastrophe that this happens in churches. Okay, so let's see here. And also to know what is right and appropriate, where was I? I said something about self-deluded, and now I've lost. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, the Ephesians had to be told these things by Paul, a designated apostle of the Lord. How much more, then, should we rely on those same things that they were told by him? Just one plus one equals two, life application. Enjoying the fruit of the Spirit comes from understanding what that fruit is and then pursuing it in the manner in which God says that those things will come about. That is found in studying and applying the Word to our lives. Read your Bible, study what it says, and then adhere to those things which it instructs you. This is what we need to do in order to be walking properly in the presence of the Lord. If we're not doing those things, then we are not walking properly in the presence of the Lord. It's not possible. And, you know, I know I say these things again and again and again, but we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And as I said, the testimony that that is true is that I do this to myself all the time. I have to do it when I'm at the mall and somebody, you know, there's somebody every single day. It's before I get there. I know it because if there's been a little bit of rain or if you've had uh, moisture, there'll be moisture on it. Every single day, somebody goes to 7-Eleven and they open, they get those little things of crackers, you know, the, like Tom's crackers or whatever. He opens it and he's been doing this for, I can't tell you how long. And he throws it in the same place in the parking lot every single day. And I have to pick that stuff up. Or if there's a wind, I'll find it all the way over there in the bushes and I got to go over and pick that thing up. Okay. I have to work on the fruit of the spirit at times. I guarantee you, especially with this person. And I can't wait till the day that I'm there early and I happen to see this person do that. I'm not going to have nice words for that person. I'm going to have to remember the fruit of the Spirit. But, you know, it, somebody sat in the, we got these planters out front with all the rocks in them out front, you know, right in front of them all. And they'll sit in there and they'll take the rocks and they'll throw them in the parking lot for 20 minutes. And I'll have to go get five-gallon buckets and I'll have to fill up those buckets and carry them back to the planters. I mean, there is not a lot of the fruit of the Spirit in my heart when I'm at that mall sometimes. So I, I, I'm telling you this so that you know that it is something you have to force yourself to do. You have to force yourself to read the Bible sometimes. You have to force yourself to say, I'm not going to do the thing I'd like to do right now. Okay, this is important because we are responsible to the Lord in everything that we do. So, uh, and if you go to the mall out on Siesta Key, please keep it clean. Don't throw your stuff out the window. All right. All right, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to check out your word and to study it and to think about it and to talk about it. Because Burke has some really good points about a child that need to be properly understood. And we've got other questions that have arisen here today or comments which people have on their minds. And it's, it's right that we work on those things, Lord. So help us to understand these things and to talk to each other about them and to fellowship in your presence and to apply these things to our lives as much as we can so that we are glorifying, we are glorifying you through our actions. Lord, we certainly pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. Let me get this backed up here.